Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. But we are starting today, something that's going to last us pretty much until the summer holidays, looking at who God is, um, trying to understand who he is and what that means for our lives. But I wanted to begin by asking the question, how do we know anything? How do we know stuff? Are there any kids here who think that they know a lot? What we would say, know it all. Hannah, put her hand up. You're a know it all, Hannah. That's good. Hannah, how do you think you know stuff? Like, if I was to ask you any question, how would you know the answer to it? Because you've been to school. So, what happens in school? You learn stuff. Yeah, but how would you learn stuff? You've got teachers who teach you, people who tell you. You do work, you kind of do your own research. Maybe you do like experiments and things like that. You do some reading. You could even learn stuff just by sitting in your chair and thinking about it. And generally speaking, there are three ways that we know things in this world. Now, this is really, really roughly sketching it. Um, But there are three ways, three things that we can use to know and to understand things. We can use, um, let me try and remember these now. I have learned this. Uh, we can use observation. So we just like use our eyes, we use our senses, we look into something, and that's how we learn about it. You want to know what the weather is like today? You stick your head out of the window or the door, and you, you'd like to see for yourself. You observe, and then you know what the weather is like. The second way is speculating. So you don't maybe stick your head out the window, but you sit and you think about it and you consider, well, what different types of weather could it be? Maybe you draw on some information that you already have. Well, you know what time of year it is and you know what sort of weather there is normally in that time of year. And you can come to a pretty reasonable conclusion. You could do that. Or there's revelation. Someone could tell you what the weather is like. Someone probably that you trust, like a weather reporter or BBC weather app or something like that could tell you, well, today the temperature is such and such. They've measured it, you trust them, and you listen to them. So there's observation, there's speculation, there's revelation. And I wanted us just to try this. Hannah, maybe you can try this because you're the know-it-all, but how would we know what I've got in this bag? So think about those three things, observation, speculation, revelation. How would we know what the contents of this bag is? I mean, you could feel, that would be one way of observing. You'd come and you'd kind of squeeze it and see if you could figure it out from there. You could just peek inside of it, couldn't you? Use your eyes. That would be the easiest way of observing what's in this bag. Or, think of a speculation. You could think, well, Sammy's got a bag on stage. Now, when he's trying to involve the kids, what sort of things does he normally bring with him? Um, He has in the past done this. He's brought sweets. He's brought chocolates. Uh, But he's also tried to trick us in the past. So it could be something really weird, like a hammer or a saw. It could be something weird. And and so you'd speculate, you'd think, and you could actually come to the right answer that way, couldn't you? Or I could just tell you what's in the bag. 
I could tell you that there are absolutely shed loads of what I think are Happy Meal toys. I could tell you, and then you'd know. So you could have used any one of those methods to figure out. Uh, by the way, this bag was left in church a couple of Sundays ago. I presume these belong to someone. So if this is your bag, you can take it. There you go. Loads and loads of Happy Meal toys. Um, that's how we see. That's how we know. That's how we understand things. And really, over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at the Bible, looking at God's Word, and really focusing in on that last one of revelation, of being told by God what He is like. Because you can actually, believe it or not, know about God in some way, shape, or form with the other two. Um, Paul says in Romans, doesn't he, that all creation declares God to us. We can see what God has made, and we can know something about Him. So we can know stuff about Him that way. We can speculate, like philosophy. We can sit down and we can think our thoughts. Maybe we can draw conclusions from the world around us, things like that. But the most powerful way means that we have of knowing what God is like is by listening to His voice, by listening to what He has revealed Himself to be. So that is what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. And just to warn you, it's going to be in no particular order. In case you think that I've arranged these attributes, character, nature elements of who God is and who He's shown Him to be in some kind of ordered list, least important to most important or most important to least important, they're not in any order. They're just, I think, 13 things that... Kind of, I guess you could say, God has laid on my heart for us to be studying as a church, to come to see who He is. We're also really going to be focusing not just on who God says He is, but why that matters. Like why it is good news for us that God is that sort of God. So hopefully it'll be a really practical series that we're looking at. And we're going to start big. We're going to start big in the sense that, well, you've already heard it read, Psalm 148. It shows us something really, really wonderful and magnificent about God. If you've got a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 148. We're going to read it together, and the words will appear up there on the screen. This is what we read. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on the earth, young men and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. And He has raised up for His people a horn, the praise of all His faithful servants of Israel, a people close to His heart. Praise the Lord. Now, I don't know whether you agree with me on this, but I think that's a tremendous psalm. I think that is a wonderful psalm that just opens our eyes, shows us something truly epic and majestic and awesome 
about God. Broadly speaking, it is cut into two halves. You might have noticed this. Two kind of lists. One that speak about that which is beyond. It speaks about things that are in the heavens above. Now, just to clarify, when the Psalms and a lot of the time in Scripture, it uses that phrase, the heavens, it isn't speaking about heaven like we think of the spiritual space where God dwells. It's kind of speaking about all that that is out there beyond our reach as human beings on the earth. So it's like, if, if you like, this list is the psalmist listing things that are on the earth, places we can go, things we can touch, people we can meet. And then these things are supposed to be things that are like beyond our grasp, beyond our reach. Still created things, part of our universe, but things that are beyond. And generally speaking, you could split the psalm into those two halves. I think that's what the psalmist is trying to do. And it's listing all these things that are supposed to give praise to God. All these things that exist because of God. All these things which are His and under His authority that are part of His world. And it's amazing. It's an amazing list. It's just the sort of thing that you see it and you go, awesome. Like that list makes us want to do what the psalm is calling us to do in praising God. And both sides of that screen, both sets, things on earth, things above the earth, are called in the psalm to worship and praise God. But I want to ask us a question now. What do we do as people, as readers, what do we do with lists like that in Scripture? When we come to something which is quite comprehensive, there are two ways I think we can deal with it. The first way... Um, is to look at the list and to ask ourselves, well, what's missing from the list? Now, he doesn't mention elephants. He doesn't mention flowers. He doesn't mention prime ministers. So what we have here is a very specific, a very limited, although long, list of things which are supposed to praise God. We can, we can do it that way. You could, couldn't you? You could look down the list and you could say, oh, well, he mentions the stars, he mentions the sun, he mentions the moon. So, presumably, psalmist, the planets aren't supposed to cry out in praise of God. Presumably, psalmist, black holes, which you've just seen photographed for the first time ever, they're not supposed to cry out to God. Like, you could do it that way. Um, the clue on the screen there for what I think about that. Or there's another way of looking at it. And you can understand the list as somebody just scratching the surface, just in a poetic way even, just in a kind of um, adding uh, nouns upon nouns way of saying something really amazing, which is that what we're trying to communicate is that God is the God of everything. Now, you know not everything is listed in that psalm, but that is the force of it, isn't it? That is really the road down which the psalmist is trying to take us. Not to try and identify, well, which things aren't mentioned. Therefore, we can create a new list of things which are to praise God and things which aren't to praise God. But to start to be walking into this area of seeing and understanding that all things in the heavens and on the earth, that we can begin to list. And if we all started chipping in other things that aren't on the list, yes, that should be on the list, that should be on the list. And it should be leading us into amazement and praise and wonder. Now, we are people 
who like divisions. We are people who like to chop things up. Generally true. And even more so, apparently, about Welsh people. Um, you may have heard of David Orleton. Uh, he's uh, died a couple of years ago, um, but he was an Englishman who came, moved to Wales, Heart for Wales, learned Welsh, was really desperate to see Wales uh, reached for Christ, and he did a lot of uh, work surveying Wales, trying to figure out, well, what actually does it mean to be Welsh? And before he died, uh, they had a book published, um, kind of going through his research, and this was one of the main things he had in his, however, I think like two decades of researching Wales, come to see that it was almost impossible to define Wales as a place because one of the things that defines us most is that we like to draw divisions. That no matter how kind of like tight into the map you zoom in on Google Maps, we love explaining, well, there's a separation, there's a dividing line, why us and them are different people. Now, see if you get what I mean. Um, Probably, most of us like to think of ourselves, Peter, calm down, I'm, there's more to this illustration, as British as opposed to European. Like, we understand that Europe exists and that Britain is technically part of it, but, you know, you've got them who speak funny languages, and then you've got us. Okay, there's Britain and then there's Europe. But if anybody comes in and says, oh, well, you're British then, are you? Well, we kind of... We say, well, no, actually, I'd like to draw a new line this time, once you've zoomed in here. We're not British, we're Welsh. Okay, well, we're part of the United Kingdom, we, I get that, but there's definitely a dividing line. Now, maybe this is where it gets a bit more personal, but if anybody comes and, and says to me, ah, oh, so you're Welsh, are you? And tries to associate me with those oddballs. I've seen one of them this morning, yes, okay, and there's another one going to live there. Up in North Wales, I think to myself, not really. I've got nothing to do with it. Have you heard the proper Welsh? Have you heard how they speak? Have you, have you seen the things that they do for entertainment? There's nothing that we enjoy down in South Wales that they've got in North Wales, North versus South. But then even if someone says, oh, well, so you're a proud South Walian, I look across to places like Cardiff and I think, oh, I don't really want to be, I don't want to be chucked in with all them either, thank you. I mean, I don't know where you stand on kind of... Um, devolution and Wales is independence and everything. What I really personally would love is a sovereign David. Just David as it was, as it's supposed to be. None of those other foolish people. Um, but even like, if you zoom all the way down into Carmarthenshire, like, we're from Amford, and we? We're not Llanelli. Llanelli, get on with it. I was born in Hendy, and there's a m massive dividing line, Hendy versus Ponte de Lice. Um, you know, Jonathan Thomas used to make jokes, didn't he? I never got them, but Upper and Lower, Brennan and Cumtork and Tumble and things like that. We love drawing lines. We love dividing lines. And there is a sense in which we do that, not just with our identity. Oh, well, I'm a man, not a woman. Uh, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a certain sports team fan, not the other. I'm a this, I'm, a, I'm not a that. We do that with our identity and things like that, but we do that as well with our faith, with God. And we portion God into certain segments of our lives and into certain segments of life in general around the world. We think of God in terms of him being a God of certain areas, spheres, um, of nationalities. We might pick a few. We think, well, yeah, he's the, he's the God of this land. He's the God of Britain, isn't he? 
The land of my fathers is the God of Wales. Hymns, revival, chapels, of course he's our God. But you know what? There's a, there's a foreign land. There's a strange land where I'm, I'm not sure they've ever heard of the name of God. Maybe, is he the God of that land? Oh, well, he should be. That's why we send missionaries there. Or, or we think, oh, okay, there are certain spheres and areas in our lives um, where, you know, God can be the God of our private life, of life that is lived behind our front door. And that for some reason, we leave God there when we spe- step out into the public sphere, into our social clubs, into our places of work, into whatever it is. God is not the God of that. Uh, and whether we do it intentionally, whether we do it unintentionally, that is what we do. We divide. We chop up. We segment off. We portion things up and say, yeah, God, you can have that space or you can have that space. But there are these blank spaces that you are not part of. Maybe we think you shouldn't be part of. Or maybe you think, yeah, in the future, perhaps, but not yet. And, and we're dealing with life and the world that we live in a little bit, like the wrong way of dealing with that list. We think we can, we can figure out in our head, yes, God is the God of these areas and of these places. But really what we should be doing is seeing God, Psalm 148, and recognizing that he is a global God. And I mean that like in the sense of lay the, get the atlas out, spin it round, put your finger on any piece of dry land or wet sea and ocean. He is the God of that. But he's global as well in the sense of our entire lives. Every aspect of our lives, he is the God of it. And actually, one of the things the psalm really does show us, Psalm 148, is that global isn't big enough, that he's a galactic God. That no matter what corner of the globe we go to and think, yes, God owns this, God owns that, he's to be praised here, he's to be praised there. There is a world that is out of our reach, beyond us, above our ozone layer and out there, that he is just as much the God of as well that he is a galactic God. And really, that's the first thing that we want to be exploring in this series. Who has God shown himself to be to us? Well, he's shown us himself to be, he's revealed to us that he is a global God. He's a galactic God, that he is a God who is over and above all things. And I think we see that really, really clearly as well when we come to Jesus, don't we? When we come to Jesus, we see how the lines that divide, the portions and the segments that we would normally use, Jesus just says, they're not barriers, they're not boundaries for me. I am the God of all of these things. So I've got a couple of examples of ways in which we can sometimes try to divide who, is the God, who God is the God of and how Jesus just evidences that that isn't true. Have you ever thought, and I think we can think about all of these things, A A and B in wrong ways, that God, Jesus, is the God of the good, not the God of the bad. As in, you know, like the upright, the decent, the tidy, the religious, the holy, not the God of scallies, scummers, and and wrong-uns. We can think like that, can't we? I think that's especially the view a lot of people outside of the Christian faith have. Oh, that's just for him or her who have got their lives sorted. That's how they can go to church. That's how they can feel comfortable because they are better people, or at least they think they're better people. God's for them. He's not, he's not for, for people like us, people who have done wrong, 
people who have made mistakes, people who have done terrible things intentionally. He's certainly not the God of them. Or we can actually get it the wrong way. We can get it wrong the other way around, can't we? That God isn't for decent people, that he isn't for like upright, uh, sensible, kind of well-behaved, polite, honest, hard-working folk. God is only really for people who have got amazing testimonies of how they used to rob people on the street at night point to, to, to get money for drugs. And, and, and they're the sort of people who need God, but I'm all right. I don't need God. God isn't for me. And I think when we look at Jesus, we just see how that is so completely and utterly and totally wrong, don't we? We've spent all this time going through Mark's gospel and looking at the sort of people that Jesus associates with. And it is people at both ends of the extreme in the spectrum. I was uh, thinking about this, and it was the story at the start of Mark when Jesus has called Levi, the tax collector, and then he goes and he has a meal in Levi's home with all of his friends. And the accusation that's leveled at Jesus is, well, what? how can you be the Messiah if you're spending time with, quote, unquote, sinners, with wrong-uns? with people whose just lives are a, are a mess and full of really obvious things that are anti-God. And it's an accusation that's being made by who? People who are good, people who are decent, people whose hearts are miles away, but, you know, outwardly speaking, they're, they're honest folk, Pharisees and scribes, people like that. And sometimes even about Jesus, we can get this false narrative that Jesus only cares about the sinners and not about them, but if you noticed anything as you were going through Mark, you should have noticed that Jesus spent just as much time with everybody. He was there. He answered their questions. He went and he taught the, the holy people, the inverted commas, righteous people, the good people, as well as the bad people. He called and he wanted people from all ends of the spectrum. Sometimes we can try and divide God up like this, that he's the God of the poor, not of the rich. Or somehow, if we really want to twist our theology, that he's the God of the rich instead of the poor. Like, we read the story of the rich young ruler, and we can kind of totally and utterly um, skew it either way, can't we? That here you've got this rich person, and Jesus says, ah, well, you've got this problem. You're wealthy. I'm not the God of the rich. I'm the God of the poor. So give everything away, and then you can follow me. I hope you remember Jamie's sermon with the monkey and the coconuts, and you see it wasn't about that at all. It was about the man's heart. God is not a God of the poor or of the rich. He's not someone who necessarily blesses financially, circumstantially those who trust in him, and he's not opposed to people. Yeah, the the uh, poverty in our lives is not a, a sign of his judgment against us. We see in Jesus... And narratives like the rich young ruler who is called, or blind Bartimaeus who is immediately called afterwards to follow him as well, someone who had nothing. Jesus, God, is a God of the poor and of the rich. Perhaps we see it like this. God is a God of the old, not the young, because we look at the demographics of people in church, and I am absolutely thrilled to say that in Amford Evangelical Church, we've got a wide scope of ages Kids, you're in with us this week, including babies. I see a little baby over there. Gorgeous. And we've got people who, you know, it's rude to ask a woman her age, but 95. 
99, you were saying, your mom is, you know? People can sometimes look at the church and they can see like literally dying churches where the average age is way beyond retirement age. Even as retirement age goes up, the average age is getting older and older and older. And it looks to loads of people, and it might look to us like, well, God is it's for old people. Like it's maybe something that you need when you're close to death. Or, it, or it's something, you know, that belonged to that generation. But we don't need it now in our generation. Or, and, and we can be really, really um, tempted to do this in our sort of spheres and circles, is we say, well, God's a God of the young. You know, we love it when we see young people in church. Oh, isn't it great? Oh, youngsters. A young preacher. Kids come up the front. Babies in church. Wonderful, isn't it? And we neglect people who are old. And we think, oh, yeah. Do you know when you stop and you think about it, it's really awkward, isn't it? To celebrate youth to the extent that we ignore old people. Like, as far as I can tell, when I come to the Bible, age has got nothing to do with it. Whether you're 8 or 80, God is your God. And you look at Jesus' life, and what do you see? Well, you see in Mark, or you hear in Mark, didn't we? that he, he encourages his disciples, let the little children come to me. Even the tiniest, smallest, youngest people, I care about them. I want them. If you go right to the start of um, Luke's gospel, I think it is, you meet a prophet called Anna, who it says this, she was very old. And it's amazing. She'd lived seven years after being married and she'd been a widow until she was 84. That's how old she was. And when she meets baby Jesus, she worshipped him. So you've got like both ends of the spectrums in Jesus' life. That He's not a God of the young. He's not a God of the uh, old. He's the God of both. Maybe we draw distinctions between men and women in worship as well. Again, demographically speaking, this is just a fact. There are more women in our church and in the church in Wales than there are men. And so you could come to the conclusion, it's like, oh, well, this is a feminine religion, isn't it? This is something only for women, or this is something that appeals more to women, or, or something like that. And again, statistically, you'd look and you see, well, who, who gets time up on the stage in these churches? Who gets to have the microphone at the start and for 20 minutes and 30 minutes in the middle? 25 minutes in the middle, I beg your pardon. Um, men. And so you could make the argument, oh, sorry, this, is a, this is a men's religion. God. And, you, and you see, we can draw lines and we can make divisions in those ways. And we just see when we, we look at Jesus' life that that is not the case. Like, very certainly, he called 12 guys especially to follow him and to learn from him and to go out with his authority and so on and so forth. But we also see in the Gospels just how many women are part of his most close friendship group, closer than a lot of those 12 even. We were thinking about this last week a little bit, how it was the women who discovered the empty tomb that Jesus gave really important jobs to. And for us to try and draw some sort of division and to say that Christianity is a religion of, or God is a God of men over women or women over men is just nonsense. He's a God over it all. He's a global God. He's a galactic God. Well, how about this last one? 
do we think of God, either in local terms, against global terms, or global terms instead of local terms? Now, I hope, I really hope, you believe in uh, the God of Ammonford and area, because that is where we are, that is where God has put us, and that is where God has called us to reach with the good news about Jesus Christ. I also really hope that you care about wider Wales. As disparaging as I might be about Cardiff and Powys, and I don't even know the names of the counties up in North Wales, as disparaging as we might be about England, Scotland and Ireland, or Europe, or continents like Africa or Asia that we just clump together in our thinking, I really hope that we see that God is a God of both, because we see that in Jesus' life. He spent his three years ministering almost exclusively in one country. Like there were a couple of trips, weekend trips that he made across a little patch of water, but then he came back, and, and a lot of his focus and his efforts were specifically in Galilee, in Israel, in Jerusalem. That's the place that he wept over towards the end. But what do we read after he's resurrected, before he's ascended? He sends his disciples to the ends of the earth, to all nations. He's a God of the local and of the global. And so I'd say that there's two ways for us to deal with lists like these. We have ideas in our heads. Well, we want to ask the question, well, what is God the God of? What is God not the God of? There's a wrong way of doing it, and there's a wow way of doing it. And my purpose in showing you or trying to like just help you to think in terms of Jesus' life, that he's the God of young and old, rich and poor, good and bad, male and female, local and global, isn't to say exclusively these are the things that he's a God of, but to start us on that journey of seeing, wow, he is the God of it all to show us that in Jesus we find actually exactly the same thing that we found in Psalm 148. God is a galactic God. He's a God over everything. Now, I said if we're going to learn about God, we also want to ask the question, so what? Like, if God is that God that he has told us to be, and I'm going to assume that God is telling the truth, although trustworthy is one of the things that we're going to be looking at about God, Like, what difference does it make in our lives? Why is that really good news? Well, I think it means that whatever we do in life, none of it is wasted. And I'm thinking in three specific areas this morning for us. Firstly, when we respond in praise, like Psalm 148 calls us to, none of that is wasted. None of that is wasted. When we offer up our entire lives in worship to God... It's not just you on your own who is doing that. It's not just us as a church family in Amford Year who is doing that. It's not just the big C, capital C, church around the globe that has existed throughout time and throughout geography that is doing that. We're part of something bigger than we can literally wrap our heads around. Like, how do... Uh, small creatures and cattle praise the Lord? How do fruit trees and cedars praise the Lord? How do the sun, moon, and shining stars praise the Lord? I don't really know. 
But I know that when we consider God to be a global, a galactic God, when we worship, whatever that looks like, with our voices, with our lives, it's not, it's not a waste of time. It's part of something that is bigger than we can ever begin to contemplate, I think. I love these lyrics from uh, Hillsong United. Um, one of my favorite songs of recent years this is what it says. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. If everything exists to lift you high, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. And, and what the author of that song is trying to get us to see is, is that our worship and our lives are part of something so much bigger when they're directed towards God. If God is a global God, then nothing is wasted, not uh, a moment of our worship. But as well, our witness. Uh, do you ever think that your witness has been a waste of time? Um, I think making notes is a waste of my time because I can't find where I'm supposed to be going next. There we are, witness. Do you ever think that, well, perhaps, is it, is it worth going out to the Basque country? If that is a country that has never really seen a church established, is it just that hard? Is it just that fruitless? It's pointless going out there, Tim and Kath. What are you doing wasting your time? I think when we recognize that God is a God of everything, we see that in, even in that traditional sense of going and being missionaries around the world, none of that is wasted. That is purposeful because it's all a part of God's creation that's supposed to respond in worship and praise. On Wednesday night, we got to see an amazing film as we came together to pray in the church building made by Open Doors about a church in a Syrian refugee camp in Lebanon. And you just think, well, what a, what a waste of time. What a waste of time trying to be a church there. You know, Muslim people moving by the hundreds of thousands across a border, just living in a, a camp that's been set up overnight with nothing, surely there'll be no fruit there. What a waste of time. And one of the amazing things it said in the video was that since that church had been established, now 70% of the people who were in the church, serving in the church especially, were people who had been saved in the camp through the church. None of it is wasted. God is the God of, of everything. Even Muslim refugee camps in, in countries we couldn't find on the globe, the Atlas. But we also have this sense of partition in our lives as well, don't we? That uh, it's hard witnessing with family, and it is hard. It's hard, or we would say risky, witnessing in the workplace to our work colleagues because we've been made fearful by articles that are spread around on Facebook that we're going to be fired and lose our jobs. First of all, you're probably not going to lose your job. Second of all, I say this flippantly, but ultimately, who cares? None of your witness will be wasted. If your family turn your back on you, that's not a waste of time. If your employers kind of shut you down and limit your opportunities for development and moving forward in job prospects, it's not a waste of time. None of it is wasted if God is the global God who we see in Psalm 148. The last one, and I think this is possibly the, the most important one for how we live our lives, is that none of our worries are wasted. 
if God is that big global galactic God that He says He is, then there's nothing that we can take to Him that is outside of His sphere, His, his boundaries, His control. Like everything that might cause us anxiety and worries are things that are within His remit. Now, I'm going to go and vote next week or the week after uh, town council elections specifically for my ward in Ammonford. Um, most people here won't get to go and vote in that because there is a like, defined area in which a representative is needed. And once that representative is elected, that will be the person apparently who I'll get to go and complain to. No, I will go and make my kind of feelings felt or what have you, this, that, and the other. Now, there could be the situation that I will go to that person and I will say, I, I, I'm really bothered by such and such a thing in Amford. And they put their hands up and they'll say, yeah, not my problem though. Because this is my patch. You know the patch. You live on it. This is the area that we're concerned with. You need to go and speak to someone else about that. When we recognize that God is a global, a galactic God, a God of all things, that never happens to us. Any worry, any stress, any anxiety that we take to Him falls within His boundaries of control, falls within His boundaries of care. None of our worries will be wasted. So I just want us to finish with these words then ringing in our ears. This is where the psalmist takes it. If this is true, let them, all things, in heavens above and on the earth below, praise the name of the Lord. For His name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. Like God has shown us that who He is, and it's great news for us because it means nothing is wasted. He's the God over all things. I'll pray, and then we'll sing to close. Lord God, we thank You that You are this sort of God. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to be not a God of a tiny corner of Ammonford, not a God of half past ten till twelve o'clock on Sunday mornings in Llanderby Memorial Church, but a God of everything and a God of all people. Lord, no matter how we'd like to slice it, how we'd like to divide it, how we'd like to partition, you're all of our God and you're God of our whole lives. Lord, thank you that because you are such a God, nothing is wasted. Because Jesus is such a saviour, that everything is worthwhile in his name. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.